The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, joining us in the Singapore studio is Janet Henry, HSBC Global Chief Economist, normally based in London. And there's so much to talk about, Janet, but you and I were just talking uh, off air then. And, and the energy escalation is certainly very much a, a big risk at the moment with benchmark futures for gas surging up to 22%. I mean, how worrying is this as, as your part of the world is about to face winter? Well, going into winter, at least we're starting in Europe, certainly in continental Europe, with high gas levels. Um, but it does, with this uh, renewed disruption, pose a risk of enforced rationing at some point. You know, what we've seen in the last couple of months was that there was reduced usage of gas. Um, consumption had been cut back. We'd filled the storage levels. And the feeling was if we could get through the winter um, and negotiate new contracts and at least get some resumption of flow, that we could manage to muddle through. But if we get enforced rationing, then it's going to potentially make what is already looking like a European recession somewhat deeper if we have to see significant um, curtailments. It's Um, almost seeming unavoidable that there will be a European recession. What about on the global front, though, in terms of the aggressive Fed tightening too, and how much that just impacts the world economy? Well, globally, we're already seeing something of a recession. It's still been quite uneven. We've had a degree of reopening. um, But Europe is is at the forefront um, of it. You know, we think the UK is already in a recession. It began in the second quarter. Europe is going into one. Parts of Asia, we're obviously seeing still some reopening effects. Um, And even in parts of Latin America, we've seen some reopening effects. And even the US is in a partial recession. Mm. Um, The residential construction um, has already been in recession, um, but the consumer is still reasonably strong. So I think when we're talking about recession, in many ways, we're thinking at what point does unemployment start to rise. And this is where the UK has been informative, been in recession for a couple of quarters, but unemployment has actually still remained remarkably low. We were talking about the fact that you say recession in many places around the globe looks unavoidable. What is your forecast for global growth for 2023 now? For 2023, well, I think like a lot of people, we've lowered our growth forecast. So we've lowered GDP from to, uh, to 1.8% for 2023. So pretty, pretty weak from 2.6%. So, of course, quite a big cut there. Uh, We're talking about a lot of the risks that we are seeing. I know you've been focusing very much on on where you are and your trip to Singapore probably made a lot more expensive with what has happened uh, with the pound. What are the chances of intervention here? Currency intervention, I still think it is extremely unlikely. Unilateral intervention um, that perhaps runs counter to the fundamentals typically tends to be quite futile. Uh, I think what it's going to take is a broader policy response. It's interesting overnight you have the IMF calling on the UK to reevaluate um, its planned tax cuts. Politically, that's going to be quite difficult to do a complete U-turn. So really, the onus now is on the Bank of England. And clearly, we had those comments 
statements from the, the Bank of England chief economist, Hugh Pill, overnight basically saying this degree of fiscal stimulus, the 45 uh, billion of tax cuts that are planned is going to require a significant monetary response. But but it looks like we're going to have to wait till November. Yeah, well, I was going to say November is still more than a month away. So a lot can happen then, as we have noticed that a lot has happened in the last couple of months on the global economic front. But if we look at the scenario where we are now, what should the Bank of England do in November? Well, first of all, they've got to analyse all the information that they've got. It's interesting that the government has now said that there's going to be an announcement later in October. Remember, they talked about trying to boost growth. You know, growth has actually only averaged a little bit above 1% over the last decade. And it's been, they suggesting that they're going to raise it to 2.5% just by um, tax cuts. Now they've agreed there's going to be many more supply side measures. And that will be important for the Bank of England because when the Bank of England sets policy, they're thinking about how it's going to influence the economy over the next couple of years. So if the government does come up with productivity enhancing measures over the medium term, that might help things. But really what the Bank of England's got to do is assess how much that fiscal stimulus is going to add fuel to the inflationary fire and what's the monetary offset going to be. So we've been forecasting 75 basis points at the November meeting. Obviously, the market's pricing in quite a lot more. Um, So depending on where we are by the time we get to November, uh, I would suggest that whatever's priced in, that's what the Bank of England will be delivering in November. Every every meeting is a live meeting, particularly in this environment. Getting back to the broader macro picture and the Fed, I mean, we continue every day to hear from Fed speakers saying that they need to keep on this aggressive uh, tightening path in terms of trying to restore price stability. Do you think that the Fed's credibility is on the line here? I think it is. We need we need to remember that the last time we had double digit inflation rates in countries, policy rates were in double digits too. Um, you know, and, and certainly that was the case um, in the UK. So when inflation has been high and rising and so far above target for so long, um, as much as financial market measures of inflation expectations are still pretty well anchored because central banks are still saying they're going to be back to target in two years time. Uh, the Fed knows um, that the biggest risk is that household consumer expectations are de-anchored and that wage setting behaviour is going to shift. So inflation falling from nine till eight is an encouraging sign, but that's not going to stop people asking for higher pay rises. And that is the, the risk of the de-anchoring. And if the Fed allows that to happen, then yes, their, their inflation credibility will be at risk. And that's obviously what James Bullard alluded to, um, the, one of the Fed governors um, overnight. We talked earlier about as well the, the the jobs market holding up pretty well which is a very different scenario to when we've seen other uh, global recessions but on that front of wage prices or at the lower end if people are not getting those increases or they're at risk of losing their job at what point does the consumer really start to I guess lead to potential downturn if you don't have enough money to pay your energy bills and, and you're very much cutting back on spending and you're worried about just uh, general cost of living prices well in the US one thing that has happened over the last year, it's actually the lower earners that have seen the biggest pay rises. But they also see by far the highest inflation rent rate. Um, you know, higher rental costs, they're more likely to be renters. Um, they spend a bigger share of their income on food and energy, which are obviously some of the areas of inflation that have been quite a lot higher. Um, and the bottom 20% of income earners in the US haven't been amongst the groups that have accumulated a lot of savings during the pandemic, even with that 
that fiscal stimulus. So to some extent, that part of the population are already in a consumer recession. But in the US, the top 30% of households account for half of the consumer spending. So without a doubt, we are seeing a slowdown. It was still pretty solid in the first half of the year. We're going to see a meaningful slowdown over the course of the next couple of quarters, um, with with some um, obviously curtailing their spending because inflation's so high, but others, um, especially higher income earners, holding up a little bit better. All right, let's get to the China picture because this is a very different story as it continues on its COVID zero policy. A lot of uh, school of thought that maybe we see a relaxation of that after the party congress. But then, as Brian was telling us too, China warning that global demand is a top threat to trade here. How do you see the concerns of the second biggest economy in the world slowing down uh, on the overall global picture? We've already seen some impact of China slowing down on the global economy. A, a lot of the reasons for some of the, the commodity price declines has been weakening demand that's happened to China. So slowing China demand does, to, in a high inflation world, at the margin, China adds some deflationary forces to the global economy, um, particularly via commodity prices. But China's export performance has been quite resilient. It's been a zero COVID strategy, but the closer loop system has obviously allowed production to um, to reopen. Um, China's still been gaining market share in certain countries and it has outperformed a lot of countries on the export front. But as Europe goes into recession, Europe's still the world's biggest trading bloc um, and weakening demand, recessionary demand um, fr- from Europe will weigh on world trade growth and China's going to need other drivers if exports are not going to be as supportive. So I think the reopening will be mm. slow paced and gradual throughout 2023. Um, so they still need to stabilise the property market and add to infrastructure um, spending. Uh, Slow paced perhaps, but we're starting to see, I guess, positive signs that that could be on the way if you look at the likes of some of the relaxation in Hong Kong and Macau. If we did see a faster turnaround, say for the likes of what we saw in Singapore, where everything was very strict and then it fell away very, very quickly, how fast can China turn around? I think it will be more slowly um, because, you know, partly because of of the healthcare system. Also, if you think about when China came out, you know, back in early 2020, it was very much a V-shaped recovery. Mm. Um, They clamped down very aggressively. They reopened very quickly um, and they got back to pre-pandemic levels of GDP very quickly, swiftly. I'm not expecting a complete U-turn straight after the party congress. I think it will take longer. It will be very gradual around the edges and then it will gradually be stepped up. Uh, after, you know, about the first quarter of next year. I think it will be more slowly, more gradual, and a lot of it will be more, it, it be felt more domestically in terms of consumer services mm-hmm. rather than something that's going to have a massive impact on global demand um, on the consumer side. I asked you earlier whether you think intervention in sterling. We've certainly seen a lot of intervention in Asian currencies. I mean, look at what we saw with the yen. How are you kind of reading these moves by um, Ministry of Finance and, and Bank of Japan officials? Well, I think as far as Japan is concerned, they have a very different um, policy. The rest of the world, uh, apart from Japan and China, does have an inflation problem. Uh, and Japan, yes, there's been a certain amount of, of intervention just to bring some some variation, some volatility to the currency so that there isn't a kind of one-way bet um, downwards. Uh, so I, do, I still see them pursuing a very divergent policy. Inflation expectations are still too low. Wage growth is still too low um, in Japan. It's 
actually some of the other Asian countries that have been intervening on the currencies almost as an alternative to raising interest rates as the Fed continues to tighten and particularly as the dollar remains strong. I think what you're probably going to see is some of the other Asian countries having to raise rates a little bit more swiftly. And I think India might be one of those over the course of the next couple of months where we do see more aggressive rate rises. All right, Janet, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you in our Singapore studio. I know you're joining the team on television shortly as well. Janet Henry is HSBC Global Chief Economist with us in our Singapore studio. And uh, Janet did allude to the fact that they are confident at HSBC that major central banks will be able to do enough to prevent an immediate wage price spiral. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.